The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann is dedicated to teachers. I'm Brett from Heinemann. This week on the Heinemann Podcast, we're handing this week's podcast over to Heinemann fellow Ming Jung Pei. Min teaches 5th and 6th grade in Los Angeles, California. She is committed to equity, inclusion, and progressive education. Min believes that collaboration is at the core of teaching. Working together with students, parents, and teachers can make a significant, powerful, and lasting impact. Here now is Min. This week, I had the honor of speaking to Dr. Asao Inouye, Professor and Dean of the College of Integrative Sciences and Arts at Arizona State University. In his recent chair's address at the Conference on College Composition and Communication, he asked, how do we language so people stop killing each other, or what do we do about white language supremacy? We talked about this chair's address, also about how personal identity work impacts pedagogy and how educators can build liberatory spaces for students. Dr. Noy shares his anti-racist practices in his classroom that creates equity and belonging for everyone. Good morning, Asao. Good morning. First, thank you so much for agreeing to record this podcast with me. I really appreciate it. And I'm so excited to talk to you today. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm excited to have the conversation. I wanted to start off by just asking you, what does personal identity work mean to you and how has it impacted your pedagogy? Well, personal identity work has always been central to uh, my own studies, both in graduate school and even undergrad. When I think back about the kinds of questions I was most interested in and the things that most troubled me as a student of color in a primarily white institution or institutions. So it's always been important work, ongoing work. And I think it really should be for everyone, regardless of how they position themselves socially in the world. So I think that it does have a very important role in how teachers go about thinking about not just how they are read or perceived or understood, or even how they interact with students or how they do the work in the classroom that they do, but I think it also matters in terms of how they set up their own relationship to the subject matter or the curriculum and the things they're asking students to do and how they respond to that, to those those things. So it's very, very important work. And I think what it means to me, it's one side of the pedagogy coin. Part of it is, of course, understanding and finding ways to create environments in classrooms that allow students, that whoever they may be in your, in, in your own setting, to learn and prosper and grow and feel good about themselves and that all those things are sustainable. But it's also about understanding who am I in this place doing this work with these students. And literacy work, for instance, the work of, say, English or writing teachers at all levels, I think is a, very, is a particularly important classroom to be doing personal identity work as a teacher, because we can, if we're not careful, reenact historical modes of colonization, and that is no good, especially given the increasing, in college at least, the increasingly diverse student bodies that we get in different places, um, at least in the United States, but globally, really. That actually perfectly takes us into you know, why I contacted you in the first place. I first learned about you through your keynote, uh, How Do We Language So People Stop Killing Each Other or What Do We Do About White Language Supremacy? And I have to tell you, when I I read it first before I watched it on YouTube, I don't know if validated is the right word, but I had never felt so seen, validated reading your keynote. 
I was like fist pumping. I was kind of just yelling, yes. It was incredible how the truth seems so clearly set. So I was hoping that you can kind of talk about the origin story of that keynote. Sure. And, you know, I have to say that um, probably the most um, often response I've gotten so far, actually, it is the most often response. Usually, and and I'll just uh, make a caveat to this, that what you kinds of things you said, being feeling validated, heard, feeling present, um, especially in the room when I was giving it, that's the most common remark that I got, I've got. And it's, and it's been, and of course, it's been from my colleagues of color who were there or who watched it or, or read it. For me, the origin story of this, uh, it probably again started um, way back. Of course, I wasn't thinking about doing a keynote way back in when I was in college um, or when I was in grad school, but the origins of it, the seeds of this were really this, the, the seeds um, that I was trying to sow in uh, grad school and in my PhD program at Washington State University, working with Victor Villanueva. I was doing work around trying to understand the epistemology of racism and how do we get to a place in the world today, or at least at that time, and again, it's, it's, it's no different today, where we can have a world where there's where there is racism without racists. And I'm, I did not coin that, that phrase. That was um, Eduardo Mania Silva's work sociologist who did work on understanding how white students and and he's mostly looking at white students but others who could have such certain ideas and then act in certain ways around um, race that were contradictory if you will then he wanted to understand what was the language and the logics of racism today like in these in these white um, groups so and they were primarily students and he looked at um, different sectors um, in the United States north uh, students from northern universities and western ones and southern ones and eastern ones and so forth so the origin of this, of the keynote came from there. So in other words, I've always been thinking about, about this and always been thinking that language, and, and when I say language, I'm really meaning languaging, right? The practice of using language, judging language, reading language, understanding language, having language be the way in which we make meaning in the world. It may not be the only way we make meaning in the world as human beings, but it is a primary way that we do it. That languaging, I've always thought about as deeply connected to the violence and the things that are going on in the world that we all could agree are bad and awful um, and unfair and wrong. So it started there. But um, then when I moved from Fresno State, I took a new job um, several years ago to University of Washington, Tacoma. There was at that moment, this was about 2014, there was a moment where where we were seeing more and more um, videos and um, viral videos and other things where we just saw all this violence particularly um, on African-American individuals in the United States from police and others. And it didn't seem like anything had changed to me in terms of like the history of racism in the United States. That's in part where that came from. And then finally, when over the year before the, the keynote came out in which I wrote the keynote, I was reviewing some old um, articles and, and literature that I thought might be important. And Mary Rose O'Reilly wrote something, I think, in the early 80s that I reference in the thing. And, and, and I talk about that as a, a version of what do we do, or excuse me, how do we um, language so people stop killing each other? And I think it was something like, how do we teach writing so people stop killing each other? Um, and I just, I thought, oh, it's, I, can, I can use that in this way because it perfectly articulates what I'm thinking, getting at. So there wasn't anything in my own experiences, like I, was, I wasn't thinking of a, a flashpoint or a particular thing, although I could list numerous ones, as we probably all could, where we felt damaged or hurt or harmed by 
the languaging practices around us in the academy. It was more about me thinking about broader outside the academy conditions. And I remember when I was reading it, it was it was a wake up call for me also, because I think that line that you said it towards the beginning to your colleagues of color in the audience saying that our presence, the presence in the room, like we're the exceptions that prove the role was a great relearning for me to kind of just remind myself that I'm embedded in that languaging, right? That it has to, that I have to have constant vigilance against that language supremacy. So I was kind of hoping that you might be able to talk to our listeners about what is language supremacy and how does it show up in the classrooms at all different levels? Yeah. And in, in the talk, I'm really thinking about white language supremacy. So I'm, I'm connecting white racial formations historically that have built um, disciplines like English studies and so forth. So that racial formation and those that racial subject position has become sort of a dominant, normalized one in the languaging or language practices, and, and, and that includes judgment of the academy and our classrooms. And I think, like you said just a moment ago, even if we are a, a person of color, even if we are from a minoritized um, subject position in the United States, and we are in the classroom as the teacher, or we are an academic or whomever, we are still a part of that machine, that white supremacist machine. And we likely got there because we were able to mimic enough of those languaging practices to be able to proceed, to succeed. It doesn't make it right. I should also say, just because I'm um, uh, identifying the politics of language, saying it is racialized, I'm also not saying that what I might identify as a white language practice is not inherently bad. I certainly have those practices in me and I use them because I've been indoctrinated. However, it's when we place those things onto as standards, onto everyone, our students, all of them uniformly, and then judge and rank accordingly. That's when it becomes a problem. It's when we take a, a, sta a standard from a very localized historical place, a, a racial formation, white racial formation, and we say that is what is good writing, that is what is clear, that is what is logical. And so therefore we grade based on that. That's where um, I have problems. And that actually, that using of a, a single standard is what I um, argue in the talk. When we draw it out past school, out into the world in various places, that intolerance to diversity, that intolerance to other kinds of standards, other ways of seeing things, other ways of languaging in the world means quite literally an intolerance to other people. And so it will lead to killing people. That's the ultimate final um, arbiter in uh, disagreements. We might disagree about something and argue, and if it gets um, far enough along the line, the arguments get long enough historically, they lead to a conflict. So at least that's my take of history, is that that's what I see. So white language supremacy has to do with who has been historically in charge and who has made the rules and how those rules now get used. And again, I'm not saying that there aren't good things about those things, about those practices. You and I now are certainly using some of those practices to be able to have this conversation. But that doesn't mean that, that it's the only and right and crit most critical and best way to do these, this kind of thing. There are other ways to do it. And I'm interested in leaving, opening up the world of my classrooms so that we have a bigger, wider, more compassionate classroom to do that kind of work together. Because I know I have a lot to learn from other people's languaging that I just, I'm not aware of because I've not been in those spaces to be able to, to have those experiences with language. I agree. And I've heard other folks say this, and I agree with you about 
not making the white, ling- uh, white language supremacy the standard, the single standard. And yet, as you just mentioned, you know, that's all I've been exposed to. So for me, the ability to reimagine how to structure my classroom, how to shift the culture of my classroom so that all the diversity of languaging that's happening in my students' lives come in and are valued can be extremely challenging. I can be sending out implicit messages, um, whether it's through grading, assessments, um, through what's given most time, and that can continue to be complicit in that white language supremacy. So I was wondering if you could talk about what are some antidotes to that? Yeah, and, and of course, the antidotes will always be slightly modified given your own teaching context, the, your, the students you're working with, and the, the boundaries that, you, that, that any given teacher might be working with in their school or their classroom or with their students and, and so forth. So what I offer here would be fairly broad language. I think, again, I want to come back to how does judgment circulate in the classroom? So if it circulates by saying one teacher grades say, for instance, literacy performances like essays and other, other kinds of writing. And that is the, that's how students uh, find out and understand their progress and move in and out of courses um, and grades or whatever um, the case may be. Then I think that is, the, that is the conventional way. That is also the way in which white supremacy perpetuates itself. Now, having said that, I could say there might there might be other ways to work in or outside of or against that system. I think the most obvious, and there's lots of literature that does that, that doesn't even talk about the politics of language as much as it talks about the effects of grades on students. And I'm sure many folks um, know this of research, so I won't rehearse it. But one in particular that I that I've always been very um, taken by is uh, Alfie Cohn's work, Punished by Re- by Rewards, and. He makes the, for me at least, he still makes the strongest argument for why grades um, are just bad for learning and bad for students and no matter what. So I, I, I think, first of all, we have to figure out how to handle grades in the classroom because grades ultimately demand a standard and they require a teacher to rank students along a linear path, which suggests just like the old-fashioned 19th century or late 19th century notions of G-factor, this universal intelligence, or IQ, and so that was somehow uniform across all people, that, there, that grades assume or suggest that same kind of uniform across all people, we can find, we can judge them and rank them accordingly. And that's just a false notion. That's just false. It's patently false. Just because we have a standard doesn't mean that we can use it against other people. That's where um, I think the damage happens. So we have to find ways in the classroom to not use our own standards against our students. Standards only do that. They only work against people. They limit. They don't offer access. Standards can only be used in a grading situation like that when you say, here's the standard, let's everybody meet it or everyone try to approach it. They can only be used to funnel in to exclude, not include. And I think that the world is a bigger and better place. Schools are a bigger and better place when we include people and we find ways to understand them better and their languaging rather than exclude and ignoring how they are doing stuff. So I think that has to be addressed. How do we use our own, wherever we may come from and however we may be using language, how do we use that as teachers? And how do we help our students use what they come to the classroom with in ways that make us all more critical, all more uh, more aware, all more open, et cetera, et cetera. And that probably comes from getting rid of grades and finding other ways to produce progress or a final course grade, et cetera, et cetera. 
I really appreciate you mentioning Alfie Cohen. And I currently work at a school where we only write narratives and we don't give letter grades. So I, I completely agree with you. And as you were talking, I could imagine hearing folks thinking about, quote unquote, academic rigor. I'm glad you mentioned that. Rigor is one of those God words that gets thrown around in education and in civic society that suggests that somehow when you blame somebody for not um, being rigorous, right, you're blaming them for not upholding some standard. It's really a, um, a white disposition. It's a white disposition because what they're assuming is they have one static notion of what rigor is. Here's what I know about people who are rigorous. Here's what I know. I know that they, they do all these non-cognitive things. They persist into stuff. They inquire, they're open, they labor, they spend time doing things, even when time is very limited. And they try, always try, to make the time that they can spend on a, on a task or a labor as meaningful as possible. They may not always know what they're trying to get out of it, or they may not always get what they initially thought they were getting at, but they work and labor, and they may try to make that labor meaningful. So for me, that is rigorous. So I don't know what the outcomes will be. I'm not a magician. I, I can't tell like what any diverse group of students will get when I put together an environment, a, a, an assignment or a lesson plan or whatever. And I say, okay, here's the labors we're going to do. What do we think we're going to get out of it? What do we want to strive for? And then we see how what we get. We start to interact. We start doing work. And then we come out and make some observations and some reflections about what we think we got. And then we realize everyone is getting different things. Some, there might be patterns in it. Hopefully there will be patterns in it because that means I've, I, as a teacher, have designed it you know, appropriately. But we're not going to all get the same things because we all come, we come with backpacks that have different stuff in them. And we're using that stuff to make sense and meaning out of the stuff that we, are, that's, that we confront and the labors that we go through. So I'm glad you mentioned rigor because rigor is, it, that's a dodge. There's nothing about an absence of a universal standard in a classroom that means there is a lack of rigor. Rigor is not something you can measure by a standard. Rigor is something that requires students to do work, to labor at something. And the nature of that labor can be all kinds of things. What people usually mean when they say, oh, you're not being rigorous enough, they usually mean you're not holding those students to a standard that I agree with. When you were just talking about being open and really getting the time to know who's in the room, it hit me that it's a very democratic way of teaching. Uh, that it's so. co-creating, yeah, yeah. yeah, that it's co-creating with your students. And I think that can be, even though there's been so much writing and research and scholarship around co-creating with your students, right? And teaching in a democratic way, that can feel very radical to a lot of teachers because it's it can't, a lot of classrooms can still look like one person in front of the classroom filling empty vessels as much as they might decorate it as something else. And one of the things that you mentioned in your keynote was deep attending and how that can be an antidote to white language supremacy and that it's connected to the way teachers assess. And I was wondering if you could talk about what does deep attending mean and what does it look like in the classroom? How does it connect to assessments? Yeah, when I think about, when I talk about deep attending in the classroom around assessments, um, I'm really trying to find a practice, an ongoing practice that might help us all find ways to be anti-racist, find ways to be anti-white supremacist in our judging and our assessment practices. So this, I think, helps us start to do that. It, for me in my classrooms, attending, the practice of attending other people's words and bodies really is attached to a larger network of stuff that I work with my students with, it, no matter what the class is. And it, it revolves around 
studies on compassion and mindfulness and their benefits to us as human beings and as students and learners in the classroom. So we, we, we start with that framing that we are going to try to find a way to first define and understand what compassion means and then list some behaviors and actions that we can do on a daily basis that will help cultivate an environment of compassion for each other. And then from that, we will try to attend to each other so that they know that they've been seen and heard and felt. At the most basic level, attending for me is more than simply reading somebody's words. Oftentimes in a language classroom, we're thinking about texts and words because historically that's the, the meat of that class, right? We're helping students communicate with words, usually on paper or on computer screens. And that's a big part of what we do and what we still do. However, we can easily forget that those words come from someplace and somebody and, those that, and they are inherited from other places that that student has been. That's the only way we can get our language from being in places where language is used from by, by other people and then we take on that language. So we often become constructed by the places we have been and the language we get that surrounds us. That's usually our parents, our family members, our neighborhoods, our churches, and our schools. So attending means that we try to find ways in the classroom together, students and myself, to find ways to understand the language and practices as a holistic thing, not just words, but also the bodies that those words come from, the voices that, that are embodying those words. So I do a, mul a number of things with feedback and assessment practices with students and with myself, where we're writing things, we're reading them to each other, we talk, exchange ideas face-to-face -face, in groups and perhaps one-on-one, -on -one. And then we account, try to account for, well, what happened in your day? How did that affect what you put down here? Or how did it affect what I was able to say? So one of the ways to attend for me has been to uh, lead my students through a problem-posing activity that I take my cues, of course, from uh, Paulo Freire, but I'm thinking, I'm asking the readers of writing, of, of writing, that is their peers writing, the readers of that writing. I want them to articulate to themselves, to me, and to the writer how they made the judgments they did and where those judgments came from, what they accounted for in the judgment of a particular passage or a particular item on our rubric or whatever it is. And so the writer then has this rich, deep sense of a thick description of the judgment practices of the reader. And the reader gets a chance to kind of problematize or think through the paradoxes of language. And then together, whether it's in groups or one-on-one or -on -one between the student and myself, we look at those paradoxes. We think about, for instance, how can reader A and reader B come to such different conclusions about your writing, about this passage or this dimension in your paper? And how can they both be right so that you, don't, you can't follow orders? You have to make a decision as a writer. What do you want to do? How do you want to communicate? So I hope you can see I'm trying to value in a very real, tangible way. We all come to this languaging enterprise with different toolboxes, and we're using them to help each other see critically, see outside of my own toolbox, and see this other toolbox. Not so that we can say, how do I be that toolbox? But instead, just to see that there are other toolboxes, and I might want to take a tool, or I might want to augment my tools to kind of do more of what your tools do but I still want to keep some of this tool here. <laughs>
So it's it for me it's it's led to really rich conversations. And I'll come back to that first question you asked about personal identity work. One of the ways in which I I asked of my students and myself to problematize our judgment practices in the classroom is to think about our own identities and where we're coming from next to this dominant set of white language habits. That is, that it, it, it gets reproduced in the academy and in English classrooms and so forth. And I have a a, a handout that offers like seven different um, habits of white language that is reproduced in texts and in our own judgment practices that I get from that my handout was created by my students and myself over about three or four years. There's a a list of resources on the back that we used to create this. So we just didn't come up with it ourselves. We were, we looked at the research on whiteness and critical race theory to understand what is it that this dominant sort of white subject position as a writer, as a judge, what tends to be the, the main ways in which that gets enacted in language. We identify those and we use that as a kind of rubric to help us problematize our own identity as a language user and our own judgments in the assessments or feedback that we provide each other. It does that personal identity work. And I, and I want to emphasize, I do this with my students. I am not um, infallible in the classroom. And I want my students to really, really know that. I want them to understand. So I will do this language work with them, this problematizing with them and let them know, look, it's not a mortal sin to say, I inhabit some of these habits of white language. Like I enact them every day. Now, now that I know that and that paradox in myself as a critical teacher, what do I do about it? What is my response? How do I respond? And how would you respond if you find that in your own self? Even if you are a student of color in the classroom that comes from a disenfranchised background and so forth. I mean, as you're speaking, a few things were going through my head. I think number one was that's wild. Because one, I mean, three major things kind of came out at me. Like your practice of what it means to be holistic. I teach elementary school and we talk about whole child all the time. That's the buzzword. But the way you were talking about your practices in the classroom with your students, that was a true concrete, explicit way to bring in our whole selves, including including the teacher in a very democratic, respectful way, like respecting the students, getting rid of the hierarchy in the classroom. And the other thing I was thinking was that it also seems like a really true meaning of diversity so that you're asking people to show what you called all their different toolboxes um, so that people can see it in a very equitable way to value it, to poke at it, to problematize it. It sounds so exciting. And I'm thinking for me, I'm 42 years old. I can't imagine walking into a classroom, especially you know, after elementary school and even sometimes during elementary school where I'm asked to do this. Because I think one of the characteristics of white supremacy is this uh, notion of objectivity. And then so with objectivity, it's almost made to seem that emotions have no value in the classroom, even though you know, students from a very early age are taught to be, quote unquote, nice, taught to be kind to each other. They're still given this message at the same time that you shouldn't have emotion in your learning, which is so false. I mean, research shows our social emotional learning goes hand in hand with our cognitive learning. So I'm really curious about your students' reactions when they step into your classroom and they're asked to participate in their learning in this way. For me, I don't know if I could bring my full self like this at the beginning. I would be really taken aback and I wouldn't know if I could trust you or not, to be completely honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I absolutely understand that. And there's a couple of ways that I try to help with that. I would be offering false advertisement to advertising about my classes. If I said from the very beginning, once I, you know, once I hand this syllabus and we talk about it the first day, that everybody's on board. No. 
Now, I will say that, that more students than you would think immediately are attracted to the, to the idea. That is, at least in theory. Like if they're not sure if I'm just pulling their leg or if this just is going to be really mostly words and not action. So there is that aspect of it, that students are, are going to be tentative until we get to starting in the work of the course. And that's usually um, by the end of the first week. We are actually, uh, I have the luxury in college, in, in my classes um, over the last decade or two, to um, have, you know, I can email my students uh, two weeks beforehand and I give them assignments and they don't complain about it. They know this is college. Okay, we're going to get something. We have to do something for the first day. So come prepared, even on the first day of class. It won't just be, let's go over the syllabus. I think that's a waste of time. They're college students. They they know what syllab- syllabi are. However, we do go over the syllabus, but I tell them we're, we're adults. You can read it. And if you have questions, and I will ask you some questions about the syllabus and I'll, we will have some some uh, reading practices that we'll do to read the syllabus together. But we're going to leave that for mostly outside of the classroom. And we're going to focus on this other more important work, building our environment together, building our ecology together. So let me come back to how I do this um, on a daily, day-to-day, week-to-week basis in assignments. One practice that I have found very, very valuable that goes along with the compassion and mindfulness, especially the mindfulness practices in the classroom. I used to use Twitter. I don't use Twitter anymore in the classroom because it's too public. I now use a a more closed system that's like Twitter. I use Slack. I'm sure you've heard of it. I use Slack to allow us to connect in and outside the classroom. And so every set of labor instructions for any assignment, whether it's reading, writing, whatever it is, I give them a, um, a, a sort of set of labor instructions, step one, do this, step two, and it's all got timing on it and so forth. And then in that, those labor instructions, there's almost always a step or two that says, pause for for two minutes in your reading, for instance, and slack us um, a message. Take a picture of the page you're you're on or take a picture of page seven and with your annotations in it or your notes and tell us one thing you liked about it. Or when you get halfway through this 10-page chapter, stop halfway and slack us, tell us in one sentence, how do you feel? What does this reading make you feel? Whatever it, and anything goes. So what I have found in this process is really interesting and startling things that really reaffirm our whole person as an intellectual, as a student, as a, as a learner. And that is that, so for instance, last spring, I, was, I did this in a graduate class. And one of my graduate students, who was an older graduate student, um, she was probably in her 30s. And she said, you know, I've never been asked in school how I felt about a reading. I never was asked that. And this is someone who's taken a lot of classes, has been asked to do a lot of reading and writing, but never asked, how do you feel when you do this labor? And I thought that for me, this is really, really valuable. It's not the only place that we go, right? But it's, the, it's one of the first places I want us to notice, to attend to ourselves. How do I feel when I'm reading this really hard chapter on whiteness? And I'm this white person, for instance. That's, and how do I feel? Does my skin crawl? Do I feel anxious? Am I hungry? Am I tired? Did I, I just get off work? Did I, did I do, is this, am I on the bus and I've got 10 minutes to get to class and I'm anxious because of that? All those things are, are, are important. I usually spend about 10, 15 minutes in class on, on one day a week. And we, we go through some of these Slack messages and we read some weekend reflections that I ask everyone to do on their labor, which usually accounts for some of the slacking as well as for their labor logs that I ask them to keep track of all the labor they do in the class. Just a quick entry for any labor session they do for the class. So it's things like, how much time did you spend? What time of day was it? What day was it? What did you do? A quick little note about like, oh, I read chapter four, that kind of thing. And then some, a few, some other data. It's things like, um, 
a five-star rating on, a, on engagement and stuff like that. So we gather this data over about ourselves uh, by over the course of the, uh, the semester. And then at mo- two or three moments, we do very careful, holistic sort of looking at the patterns in, in our labor practices. Now, this is a layered way for us to attend to ourselves and be compassionate to ourselves and get a chance to talk about it with, with the class, with our, with our groups or with the class as a whole or with me so that we can say, we're whole learners. We don't just read um, in, a, in a mind or a brain. We read with our bodies. We write with our bodies. And those bodies exist in time and space. And it is not equal. You do not have the same amount of time I've got. I work, you don't work. Or I work across town. I got to take the bu- three buses and to get there, et cetera, that kind of stuff. And those things are all part of the reflections and the slacking and that kind of stuff. It is not to make excuses. It's simply to understand those things. And of course, for me as a teacher, this has been really, really valuable practice for me to be able to adjust on the fly if I'm asking too much, if due dates or de- deadlines are unrealistic for half the class. And then and we talk about those things. And I often will um, change or or alter um, the uh, the classroom, the assignments, or the uh, the labor expectations, and etc. Uh, given what students say, and I'm usually asking them, "Is this too much for everybody, or is that due date okay, or that is that time is it due at that time? Is that good for everybody, or should we change that? What would work best for everyone?" And then we talk about it. So we try to be democratic and we try to be fair, as well as trying to keep in mind what the goals of the class are and trying to to hold to those things as well. And just thinking about how you completely change power dynamics in your classrooms. And I'm wondering, teachers out there who might feel challenged and or threatened by that, when you were first diving into this practice, how did that feel to you? Yeah. <laughs> My first dive into it, I suppose, would, would have been as a PhD student at Washington State University. I was really troubled by the power dynamics in the classroom because I felt like it was disruptive for the to the learning that I was that I thought most everybody in the field would want at a, in a writing class so I was trying to find ways to disrupt that um, power dynamic and change it and give my students a more democratic set of power relations in the classroom so I moved to um, some communal grading practices and that didn't really work out but my diving in was really uh, my own problematizing of my own subject position in the classroom and saying what is it? that I'm so afraid of? Why am I so worried about giving up that power in the classroom? Because I was anxious about it, very anxious, and I was not sure I could do it. And I came down to, at least for me, my conclusion was at that time, what I'm worried about is not being able to control the classroom and my students. And then I had to ask, why do I want to control my students and the classroom? What is so bad or dangerous about not having control when in my life do I ever have any control over anything? I don't have control over anything in my life. So that, I think, made me um, feel a little bit easier about it. It was still anxious. But once I did it and really tried to do that, my students responded in the ways that people normally do. And that is with big, generous hearts. And they said, well, if he's going to do this, I'm going to try to do it. I think that that was really important. I think we can often, for a variety of reasons, not give folks the benefit of the doubt, right? Like we can think that that our students are are smaller and lesser than what they really are. And I don't think that most of the time that is the case. Whenever I've uh, had to negotiate a syllabus or an assignment or a due date, my students are incredibly generous 
an incredibly um, uh, rigorous and incredibly um, kind and compassionate when we can pay attention to those things. When we can't pay attention to them, then it's easy to lack compassion or not demonstrate it. It's easy to not be kind. We tend to just think about, oh, what's going to get me through the day? But when we say, wait a minute, how, how, how do we help our neighbors get through the day? How do we help them get educated? You will get educated in the process. And if 28 other people in the classroom are helping you get educated, helping you learn, I think that's better than you trying to do it on your own. So that to me feels, that's the kind of world I want to be in. It's not this sort of dog eat dog world, this sort of like highly competitive kind of classroom or world. I don't think anyone really wants that. I want something bigger, more generous, more compassionate. That's the world I want to live in. And so I try to start in my classroom. Once I realized that, I was having these unrealistic expectations about myself as a teacher. And, I'm, and I don't want to pretend like my sense of, lose, of losing or not losing control in the classroom is universal. Like, I don't want anyone to think that that's like the reason why all teachers don't do something like this. I say that was mine. And I would say that it's, it would be important practice for a teacher if they're contemplating things like this, what is keeping them from jumping in? And it could be very good reasons. For instance, the kinds of uh, constraints that, that some teachers may have given the teaching conditions they you know work under. I've been fortunate to have taught institutions and in departments and conditions that have allowed me to do this kind of work. I've been able to get tenure and promoted and da-da-da and all that stuff and not lose my job. And my students have responded, have always responded well. Before I did, I went to, to non-grading, to ungrading, to grading contracts. Before I did that, I probably would get like what everyone, uh, what every uh, teacher, college teacher gets is that's like one to two grade disputes um, in my classes every year or every every other year um, out of all the classes. Now, from the point that I started doing contracts to now, I have gotten a total of zero of grade um, complaints and grade um, disputes. Zero. And I have all the data to show why that's the case. I investigated that data to some degree in the in this last book that I wrote about labor-based grading contracts. So I really think that it's um, important to to think about about those things like like grade disputes or grade distributions and think carefully about them. I'm not saying that I'm perfect. Um, I'm just saying that fairness is constructed among the people that the system is making decisions on. If students are involved democratically and have enough power in that system to make decisions, are empowered to make decisions about their grades, grades will seem ultimately fair. There's no other way around it. Fairness isn't this sort of abstract quality of a, of a particular system. It's, it can be a quality of any system as long as there's a right level of participation. Gosh, I wish I had you in college. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, I just want to ask you to dive into just one more thing before I let you go. And it's a quote from your keynote. And you ask the colleagues of color in the room, what does it mean to you, my colleagues of color, to sing your freedom in your classrooms, your scholarship, your pedagogies? And even reading that right now, I'm kind of getting choked up because no one has ever asked me that before. And I think that's that's a shame, right? That, I think that's, imagine the, the ed, what education, what classrooms would look like if everyone got a chance to think about this question at that kernel stage, right? When you were just learning to be a teacher, I want to be a teacher. What does it mean to sing my freedom, to do my work in the ways that I want to do it right now? Doesn't mean you wouldn't learn things from what other folks have done. It just means you might be the innovator in your world and you likely could have been or, or, or are. So I think that question, 
I keep asking myself that question every year with every new batch of classes and students I, I teach. I want to know how do I, how can I sing my freedom and how can I do my pedagogy and be me, be the most authentic, best me I can be so for the benefit of my students. And I think at least the way I've, my train, my track for this has been up to this point, thinking about the engine of racism, which is assessment, judgment of other people and the judgment of their words. And because I'm, of course, in literacy classrooms. So that to sing my freedom in classrooms is not about me singing, actually, ironically. It's about being in a choir, if you will, <laughs> or in, in this, this bigger um, room with lots of voices happening at the same time. I mean, I used to say when I was um, first starting out as a teacher, I learned something from my students every semester. And that was true to some degree, but it wasn't fully true. I walked into those spaces thinking I knew so much more and so much better about what to do in that class and what to do for those students than I thought the students did. And I think the language of my syllabi really reflected that. Now, I can really honestly say I learned so much from my students, from 18-year-olds. I'm 49 <laughs> from an 18-year-old. I learned from 18-year-olds. And it's often been because I've structured myself and my classrooms in a different way. So I attend in very different ways. That is, I attend to them, their bodies and languages in very different ways than I did in the beginning. And it has everything to do with that. It has nothing to do with my intention to be a good teacher or my willingness to be a good teacher or the, the amount of knowledge I know about the subject matter. It has everything to do with what am I structuring in my behaviors in the classrooms with my students and how can I do that in generous and compassionate ways? For me, if you want to be rigorous, be compassionate. It always leads to, to more rigor and it always leads to more, more stuff, more things that happen that you didn't expect. I love it when my pedagogy or my lesson goes off the rails and does things that I didn't expect it to do and couldn't have imagined, because that's usually where the good stuff happens in the class. That's usually where at the end of the, of the semester, students will say, well, what I really loved about this class was that moment when, when this happened. And it was the moment that I didn't script. I think like, wow, what other profession can we have that we could do that? And that's part of a democratic classroom. That's part of like finding my freedom, you know, um, and, and helping students find their freedom while still trying to accomplish some of the goals that we all try to mutually set out to do. Wow. Thank you. I feel like my brain was stretched. I feel inspired. I'm already percolating with ideas of how I want to spend the first week of my class when school starts. Definitely going to borrow your idea of starting it off with talking about compassion and mindfulness and what that looks like in our classroom together. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Our thanks to Mint for producing this week's podcast. If you'd like more information on the Heinemann Fellows and their action research projects, visit Heinemann.com fellows for more. Thanks for listening.